All right, let's um, talk a little bit about dreaded growth. Now, this morning I was making a big deal about the providence of God and all the little details and, you know, how in the world could it be that, um, you know, here I'd be in this text in John chapter 4 and the readings in D group were so connected to everything that was going on uh, with regard to that text. And, uh, but that, to me, pales in comparison to the reality that I think three months ago, I looked at my calendar. It was about three months ago. I sat down with Pastor Matt, and we began to talk about this series about spiritual growth and spiritual formation and how we were going to do it. And we began to lay these, uh, the, these topics out. And basically, you know, I have my calendar out. And so, uh, okay, you know, here, here are the weeks that I need you to do. And here's the topics that you're going to do. And all this is laid out months in advance. And so here I am uh, this past week sitting in my study and uh, saying, Lord, now... Rod's in Dominican Republic, Brian's in North Carolina, and Matt's out of town with his family. I'm the only person here. My brother-in-law's dying of leukemia in Pensacola, and my topic is spiritual growth through suffering. And by the time we get through tonight, it'll be obvious to you that it's all in the, the providence of God. It is in the providence of God. And, and we don't like to talk about it a lot. It's not something that uh, is our favorite conversation. But believe me, uh, suffering and adversity is such a critical part of our lives as believers and followers of Jesus. And God as you'll see tonight, uses those times of struggle for great benefit in our lives. So let's just start with a couple questions. First of all, have you noticed that our greatest spiritual lessons are learned through episodes of pain, suffering, and adversity? If you do a spiritual inventory of your life, if you look back over the course of the past, say, two years or five years of your life, and you Say, now, in the last couple of years, where was a place where I seemed to grow the most in my relationship with God or my understanding of His character and nature or whatever it is? What you'd find is that it's, it's almost certainly going to be linked to times of adversity. Have you noticed that real spiritual growth and character development, they don't come in times of prosperity and comfort? In fact... The times of prosperity and comfort, though we enjoy them and though we want them and though we like them, uh, actually uh, yield very little fruit in our lives most of the time. Throughout this study, it seems like almost every single week, there's been some correlation that we've been able to show you in that 
God, the creator, creator God, we, he, when he put everything together, uh, he left his fingerprints and his handiwork on everything. And so the reason why I draw your attention to that is because we tried to, we've tried to show you week in and week out how spiritual formation and what we see happening in the physical environment around us mimic each other. So last Sunday night, we had a long conversation about reaping and sowing. Tonight, I want to draw your attention to the fact that with regards to suffering, grass grows thicker and greener in the valley and does not grow on the mountaintop. And so if you uh, spent some time hiking with me uh, and we were scaling up a mountain somewhere on the Appalachian Trail, when we got to the top, I was so disappointed in the Wednesday night crew. I mean, I'm going to see if maybe you can do better. But I said, what do you call the top of a mountain? It's a bald. Who said that? See, somebody knew. It's a bald. Because when you get up there, it's almost always bald. There's nothing there. And because things don't grow on the top, they grow on the bottom. And the higher up you get, the more sparse the growth is. So correlate that with what Job says. Uh, see there in Job 23.10 on your sheet of paper there. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. You come forth as gold through the testing, not through the... Uh, what did I say this morning? It never ceases to amaze me what flies out of my mouth. Tiptoe through the tulips. Right. That just flew out there. I'm like, okay. So let's talk first about the foundation. And I should be thankful that's the only thing that flew out. Let's talk about foundation. Some principles. And what we're going to do today is because tonight is I know that there's a lot of questions about suffering and a lot of misunderstanding about suffering. And so I'm going to straighten all that out. But to do that, we're going to have to lay a foundation. So I'm just going to kind of go through this. I'm just laying a foundation so that we can build on it. So let's go. All human suffering is a result of the fall. All of it. Now, there may be, we're going to get into the complexities and the nuances of suffering. And there, on the surface, there can be all sorts of different things. But at the bottom of it, all of it is the fall. For followers of Jesus, no suffering is without meaning in our formation in Christ. God will not waste one second of your suffering if you're a follower of Jesus. He uses all of that. In the journey of following Jesus, suffering takes on, here we go, formational meaning when God in His grace enters into the pain and suffering, our pain and suffering, to comfort and shape us into the image of Christ. God loves to enter our suffering. He loves to show himself mighty. He remember, um, we'll get to this in a minute, he told Paul that in your weakness, Jesus said, my strength is made perfect. Just another il illustration of how God loves to reveal himself in our suffering. Spiritual formation occurs when God invades the destructiveness of suffering that results from the fall of man and uses the pain of suffering for his redemptive purposes in his people. You know, when 
in the, in the Christian life, it is oftentimes when you feel the least usable that you are, in fact, the most gloriously prepared to be used by God. Spiritual formation often occurs in the refining crucible of suffering. You see, to come forth as gold, there's only one way to refine gold, and that is through the crucible. You have to refine it, the refining fire, as Scripture uses. So this refining crucible... Now, two uh, things to keep in mind is that when we suffer, our innermost selves are revealed in affliction. And as we learn to commit ourselves more deeply to the redemptive purposes of God, you will find out who you truly are in suffering. You will find out things about yourself and about the core of what you believe and what you truly have uh, sunk your heart into in the midst of suffering. And so it's in trials that we grow in our capacity or our understanding to exercise faith, hope, and love. The principle here is that you don't use what you don't need. And so the the point that I uh, want to drive home here is that The reality of whatever it is that you would say about yourself, however you would uh, describe or verbalize your relationship with God or your walk with Christ or uh, whatever it is that you would say is really meaningless. What matters is not what you say, but what you do. And the reality of who you are is what you do when all the chips are down. And so in moments of deep struggle, and so if you're a person who has a great capacity uh, of faith, you have a deep and abiding faith, you're a person whose soul is filled with hope, you're a person who is able to uh, pour out the love that God's poured into you, how did that happen? That happened through trial, because otherwise you would just take it for granted. You don't learn to use things you don't need. And so it's through adversity. God uses adversity to shape our souls and then to spread the aroma of Christ. You can write down uh, next to those, those last blanks you just filled in, write down 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. I'll read this to you. I didn't put it on your handout, but you can just write the Scripture reference down. The way God shapes our soul through suffering. Second Corinthians 1, the Apostle Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And so the point of this shaping of our souls is the reality that um, 
over the course of time, um, and the older you get, the more rare these uh, acquaintances become. But uh, from time to time, I meet people. Usually they're younger. Uh, I meet people who you would say have lived a charmed life would be the terminology that we would use. Someone who has not, everything has sort of always gone according to plan and they've, you know, maybe might even some people might say, well, they've just lived a blessed life. They really haven't suffered. Um, They will, but they haven't yet. Now, when, when I meet somebody like that, I don't need to know their story to know that that's their story. It will not take me long in the course of conversation and getting to know them that to figure out that that's the case. And here's the telltale sign, is that when a person has not suffered, they have no capacity to empathize. You see, empathy is a very, very important virtue in the Christian life, but it only comes through suffering. You you don't empathize with other people. And so what happens is is that people who, who don't suffer become very shallow. They, are, uh, they show little compassion for the struggles of other, others. And so what you need to understand about hurt is, is that this is just helpful. I'm just giving you some helpful pastoral wisdom on suffering that will just be a blessing to you. Trust me. When you're hurting... I'm talking about when you're really hurting, when you uh, face a time of deep sorrow and pain in your life. The people that you want around you do not necessarily need to be people who have walked in the place that you're walking. We put uh, a little too much emphasis on that oftentimes in our culture today. That's not really what's important. What is important is that you... You want people to comfort you who know deep pain. You see, pain uh, is relatable. It doesn't need to be the same pain. Pain is, is universally beneficial. So somebody may not have suffered anything along the lines of what you've suffered, but if they've suffered deeply and you're suffering deeply, They can minister to you. They can empathize with you. They can relate to you. They can be a blessing to you. And what will not be a blessing to you is people who have not felt deep pain. And so if you, for example, just read the book of Job, that's exactly what you find. You find a man who is deeply struggling and surrounded by people who don't get it, and it's very hard. But when you do find in Scripture people who have felt and and understand pain, and it, again, doesn't have to be anything uh, related to the same pain, but they're able to minister. And so uh, it'll be a blessing to you. So although God calls us to participate with Him in this process of spiritual formation, we do not, I cannot overemphasize this, you put an asterisk by this point. We do not initiate some of the most life-changing experiences in our journey, especially with regard to dreaded growth. 
much of what God uses greatly to grow us in our lives, much of what comes into our lives as uh, real uh, defining moments through pain and trial, you don't initiate. They are utterly and completely just uh, due to a journey in a fallen world. And trying to uh, connect those things, uh, you know, this is the, this is the, the crushing weight of legalism uh, and people that are trapped in that uh, false way of thinking and believing and relating to God uh, is that you will self-condemn and you are sadly mistaken and, and will miss much of the good that God desires to bring forth from your suffering. So they're, they're unexpectedly thrust upon us in the form of failure, loss, injury, illness, pain, exploitation, and unfulfilled desires. And I guess the list could have been 20 things long, but I think that's pretty sufficient. It pretty much covers the, the spectrum. And so if you just look at some of these things, you know, I mean, yes, you could say to yourself, um, you could say to yourself, well, the reason why, you know, these things are happening is because of these failures. And so if I'd have worked harder or, or done better, been more diligent or this or that or whatever, then that, those, this particular failure or that particular failure wouldn't have occurred in my life. But here's my question for you. Is there any point in your life where you realistically had some idea that you weren't going to fail? That you were always going to succeed? Well, of course not. You're going to fail. Failure is going to be a part of your life because it's a part of everybody's life. And so there's going to be times of failure. And it wouldn't matter how much you prepared or how hard you tried or whatever it is that you're using to, uh, you know, extrapolate some sort of self-condemnation out of that. And whether it be loss, listen... You're just going to lose. You know, that's, that's just life. So my family has lost this week because that's what life is. And that's how it works. And death is a reality around us. And we're going to have to face loss. There's going to be injury. There's going to be illness. Those aren't things that you initiate or bring upon yourself. They just happen uh, much of the time. They're just unexpectedly thrust upon us. And so these painful experiences can shake our foundation and expose our deepest longings and weaknesses. How so? Well, consider as an example the discipline of prayer. The power of of what God has given us in prayer. The lengths to which God created a redemptive system whereby His own design, He facilitated that the Lord Jesus, our Savior, the one that we exalt and worship and, and, and love and owe our salvation to within this the Trinitarian relationship is the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf. I can't overemphasize the lengths to which God has gone to, to make way for this incredible 
power that we have in prayer. And yet, what you will find through suffering is that many people's belief in prayer is merely in external um, acknowledgement Now, there are some of you in this room who have been through excruciatingly difficult seasons in your life. And as your shepherd, I know just because sometimes I just know things. That during those times... Maybe I was with you. Maybe I wasn't with you. That you sought the face of God in a very real and desperate way. And in your time of great need, you didn't turn to the world for answers. You didn't turn to other people for solutions. But you stowed yourself away in your prayer closet and you fasted and you prayed and you waited for God to move. But unfortunately, that's not the norm. And what suffering normally does is it reveals that most people who claim the name of Christ, and I'm just using prayer as an example. We could talk about this all night. Use prayer as a last resort. And so I would simply say this. Number one, uh, people who truly understand the power and the privilege of prayer and fasting um, the chances of you knowing who they are are extraordinarily slim because they not only know that, but they know Scripture well enough to know that the last thing they're going to do is tell you and lose their blessing. But maybe we suffice it to say this. When was the last time that you, in desperation, not when you got done checking off everything else on your list, but that your initial gut reaction to excruciating pain, suffering, whatever the case may be, was to turn your heart to God and to beg and cry out to Him as your comforter and your helper. You see, pain exposes all that. It's because suffering affects us so deeply that it can also be profoundly transformative. That many people will come away in Christ, will come away from suffering with the reality looking back that, yes, that was horrible. Yes, that was painful. No, I would never want to go through that again. But I'm so grateful 
for how God has changed me through my suffering. Suffering gives us this rare opportunity to really know our innermost self. I don't really know how else you can find many of these things out about yourself apart from suffering. It's just really, it's the only way to bring the gold to the surface. Okay, so that's the foundation. Now we're going to get to the places you want to go. The function. Let's talk about the function. Misfortune, illness, depravity, and the cruelty that cause our pain and are still intrinsically bad despite how God may use them for good. So I put Romans 8.28 here. I love this verse. It's one of my favorite verses. But I have a love-hate relationship with the verse because as much as I love it, I can't read it without getting a little gnarly inside because it's so uh, uh, misused in our culture. And uh, every time that I talk about Romans 8.28, I try to ensure that whoever is listening to the sound of my voice is yet reminded again, or maybe for the first time, that what Romans 8.28 does not say is that the bad things that you endure, God is going to turn them into good. That is the most gross mishandling of that reality. What it says is, is the bad things that a Christ follower endures, not everybody, but a Christ follower, that verse only applies to people who belong to Jesus Christ. But if you belong to Jesus Christ, what it says is that the bad things which you will endure, God will use them for your good, but they will always and forever be bad. They're bad. And so it's never going to be a good thing that you lost somebody or that some terrible thing happened to you or that there was a head-on collision or that it's a bad thing or that someone's got cancer or whatever the case may be, but God will use it for good. But it is not a good thing. It's Him in His graciousness and His sovereignty using it for our good. So when you come in contact with somebody who is deeply hurting, what you want to do is, you see, because if you've hurt, you understand this. People who have hurt deeply just intuitively understand this principle because they know what it is to hurt, and so they know how to approach and minister to somebody who's hurting. What you'd never do is go to somebody who's in deep pain and say to them, Romans 8, 28. Because in the midst of what they're facing right now and feeling right now, that is not comforting to them that, first of all, they're no doubt aware of that. But second of all, what you're doing is you're, you're saying to them, there's coming something in the future, so you should put away what's hurting you now and just focus on what's coming in the future. Now, here's the problem with that logic. It would be the same as you walking into a hospital room 
where someone lay there with two crushed uh, legs and saying, I know that your legs got crushed in the accident. I know that there, you have, you know, 40 pins and you're in traction. But what you need to do is get up and start walking. Well, yes, in the future they're going to heal. But the now is it's bad. And when it's bad, what you need is somebody who can empathize with bad and who will just come beside you and not offer you some trite, you know, uh, thing to try to uh, take away your pain, but just come beside you and just listen. When I'm hurting, this is what I want around me. I want people who listen. I want people who are good huggers. That's what I want. When I'm with somebody who's devastated, I get right up with them. I put my arm around them. And I just listen. And when there comes that awkward moment where you feel like you need to have something to say, shut up. Get your Bible out. Open to the book of Psalms and just simply start reading a psalm. Don't infuse any human wisdom. Don't start, you know, letting the awkwardness of the moment cause you to break down in logic and start recanting some story of somebody that you knew that was in some... Listen, they don't need to hear that. What they need is they need you to understand that they're hurting. And they just need you to show them love by listening and being with them. It will be extraordinarily helpful. But in order to do that, you have to understand the nature of pain. And so, while God may redeem suffering by bringing good out of it for those who love Him, it is not what we want, nor should want. And it is not what God wants or originally intended. That's important information. You see, I want to grow spiritually. I want God to form me spiritually more and more into the image of Christ. But I don't want to suffer, and I don't want to hurt, and I don't want my heart to be broken, and nor should you. And if you do, then you've got deeper issues. And God doesn't want that for you either. Because God created us to exist with Him in perfection, which we, by the way, one day will. But as long as we're on this fallen earth, there's going to be suffering and there's going to be pain. And so what we need to do is understand that it's not what we want and it's not what God originally intended. But God has made provision through His Spirit to minister to us and to use that in our spiritual formation for good. Not to make it good, but to use it for our good. Our experience of suffering must be linked to our theology of suffering so that we do not offer easy answers to the problem of pain. It really is just shocking. At how often people meaning well 
could have just been so much better had you just not said anything. Just, it would have been so much better. Do not. I'm not, I'm not talking about, you know, I mean, I could be talking about somebody who, who lost a job. But what I'm really talking about is someone who lost a child, someone who lost a spouse. I'm talking about real pain. You know, when you're, you're sitting in the waiting room of the ICU and someone's loved one is on the other side of these locked doors in this little room with hoses coming out of every orifice of their body and a machine controlling all their functions and it's a serious moment and there's a lot hanging and there's there's grief and there's uncertainty and those things are all natural responses to that moment and to think for anyone who thinks that in that moment what your job ought to be is to cheer someone up or to wipe away what God intended to be in that moment is not only unhelpful but hurtful. And I've seen it many, many times. you got to have a theology of suffering. And if you have a good theology of suffering, you will, you'll know how to just sit in a hard place and just wait. And just wait. Our suffering reminds us that we're human. That we can't know all that we are desperate to understand and that we desperately need God. You see, it reminds us of that helplessness that comes with humanity. The realization that, especially in our culture and age, that there are so many things in our world, in this country that we live in, and all the great blessings that come along with it, that sort of lull us into thinking that we have capacities and abilities and uh, that we really don't have. You know, there's, there's a lot of problems that if you live in the United States of America, you can fix that everyone else in the world simply can't fix. But real suffering reminds us that there's a whole lot of problems. It doesn't matter where you live. You can't fix it. And what you need is God. And so here's what happens. As other people witness this interaction, this struggle, the faith in adversity, and they see God's sustaining grace in our lives, they receive hope that God can be trusted in their own broken lives. You see, this is the, is, is the, the a theology of suffering exposes the fallacy of the false prosperity gospel and the reality that it couldn't possibly be true and that it, it never is true and that it's always going to fall short. It, it, it lacks in every arena of real life. It's just a short-sighted, 
gimmick to draw you in all the while fully knowing that eventually you're going to leave defeated. Because no matter how many times somebody tells you that if you have enough faith, bad things aren't going to happen. As people around here say all the time, that dog's not going to hunt very long. It's just not. It's not true. It never has been true, and it never will be true. Until God takes all the suffering away and wipes every tear from our eyes, there's going to be pain. So now let's talk for a minute about the fallout. That's the function. Now here's the fallout. Here's how it all comes out. So the pain that results from sin is common to all humans. It originates from three primary sources. So here's where this comes from. Okay, number one, human choice. Now there's a lot of pain that can come into your life and my life that are uh, results of human choice. The realization that I'm human and you're human and that I, I have a fallen flesh and you have fallen flesh and that we're not yet perfect and that we're going to make an array of choices across the span of our lives. Some are going to be pretty good. Some are going to be pretty bad. Some are going to uh, have elements of wisdom and some are going to be utterly and completely foolish. Next is creation that is in bondage. So you've got human choice that's going on, but simultaneously we live in broken creation. We live on an earth that is in bondage to sin. And I'm going to get to these in detail in a moment. And then thirdly, and I think these are in this specific order for a reason, powers and principalities. Not that I think the powers and principalities are uh, less damaging or dangerous or have less potential to do harm, but because I don't think they have to. I think most of the time, human choices uh, take care of, uh, create enough pain in and of themselves, and what that doesn't take care of, uh, creation and bondage will. So let's talk for just a moment. Human choice. Let's look at that in a little bit of detail, just briefly. When sinful decisions cause suffering, so there's broad places where this applies. Like, for example, in Isaiah 53, a scripture that we know and many of you can quote, but oftentimes we wouldn't look at it in this light. Isaiah 53, the scripture says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Now, here's my question. Who turned us? Who made us turn? Who forced us to turn? Who tied us up, drug us away, and made us turn? Nobody. We turned. And why did we turn? Human choice. That's why we turned. And so there, that, there's, there's all sorts of, you know, in our self-reliance, you know, even in Christ, we still have this self-reliance. We make choices that harm us and others. My goodness, I long for the day when every self-exalting, self-reliant thing within me is dead for all eternity. It is a curse, I'm telling you. It's a curse. 
Choices that spring from any variety of things. Ignorance, neglect, indifference. Passively but effectively hurt individuals, people, groups, and sometimes entire nations. You read the Bible and you look around in your own life and the lives of others and here's the thing. The realization is inescapable that in these choices that we make, sometimes we make poor choices completely out of ignorance. Completely. We just simply don't, didn't know. Maybe we make a poor choice by default because we've neglected it. Maybe some of the, the poor choices that you've made have been not making choices at all. And so by default, it winds up being a disaster because you have a tendency not to deal with things and to procrastinate and to try to let things just resolve themselves, which oftentimes goes poorly. Or maybe it's just indifference. Maybe it's areas of your life where you just grown hard. But here's what happens. It passively, but effectively... brings hurt into our lives. You see, it comes in passively, but that doesn't make it ineffective. Just because it entered in You see, it doesn't matter how the person who intends to do you harm it doesn't matter how they got into your house in the middle of the night. The only thing that matters is they're in your house, right? So if they're in your house because you forgot to lock the door, what difference does that make when they're in your house as opposed to if they kick the door in, climb through the window, cut a hole in the roof? It doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is they're in your house, right? Well, the same thing goes with choices. A lot of times it's just in passivity, through neglect, through indifference, but it doesn't make the pain any less effective. The worst and most painful of all human choice is that that's deliberately inflicted. What makes it so painful is because the wounding is personal. You see, the, the worst pain is that which was purposely and specifically perpetrated. So that's human choice. Number two, creation and bondage. Because I'm sure there's a lot of you wondering, like, I, you know, choice I get. Creation and bondage I'm struggling with. Well, you know how much I love to talk about reaping and sowing. Creation and bondage, reaping the harvest of sin. A few verses before you get to verse 28 in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, capital H, who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans with labors and with birth pangs together until now. I know Paul's wordy, and I know a lot of times you might read that and think to yourself, I'm just not sure what that means. But if you just 
slow down and think about it and meditate on it for a moment. You'd realize that all creation suffers hurt and damage and death and erosion and decay. You see that every day. It's undeniable. Because God linked the consequences of Adam's decision to creation. Now, creation didn't sin. Adam sinned. So why did God do this? Because in doing so, he was refusing to leave us as the only creatures or creation on earth that die and decay. It's the goodness of God that he linked it together. That the, the fallenness and the, and the groaning of creation is a, is a source of encouragement for us. It is, a, it is a confirmation in the gospel and the reality of God. God allowed in his goodness sin to distort his creation and cause suffering for the redemptive purpose of drawing us back to him. Man, we should be so grateful for the continuous reminder of the world around us of what's going on. It is such a blessing, not a curse. Although it's a curse for nature, and it's certainly a curse, uh, it feels like a curse to the lost man. You see, the, the, the impermanent... Now think about this. The impermanent life cycle of decay and, viol- and the violence of the food chain. That we know as integral elements of nature are in fact characteristics of temporary, unnatural status or state. You see that it won't always be that way. And so, I'm sure there's been studies about this. I'm not aware of them, uh, just probably because I haven't taken the time or felt the need to look them up and analyze them, but maybe I should because it would probably be uh, a fun endeavor. But in any room filled with any amount of people, there's always two distinct groups of people. And I don't know if it's evenly matched. I would say it's probably way swayed to one side or the other. But there's always two groups of people. And I don't think anybody's really neutral. You got the person who, if, you're, if we're all in a room and on the screen, I begin to show a video of a cute little gazelle walking across the African plain. And suddenly a pack of hyenas begin to come into the bushes and surround the little gazelle. There's going to be probably a larger group of you in the room that are going to begin to back up and close your eyes and you get uneasy and you, you know what's coming and you don't want to see it and you're not going to watch it. And then there's a few people in the room that are going to lean forward and are going to watch the hyenas stalk and work together. And then there's going to come this moment where there's the mauling of this animal and it's violent and it's bloody and it's hard to watch. And a bunch of you just checked out. You're not even watching. You got your eyes closed. You know, you're like, is it over yet? But that's a temporary, unnatural state. It wasn't originally like that, and it won't be like that in eternity. It's that way now, 
as a reminder of the world in which we live. It's the reality of what it is. And what I think is interesting about that is that it, it all depends on who you identify with. I mean, I think there's some people who identify with the hyenas because they're, they got problems. But I think there's some of us that are very healthy that identify with the hyenas because we're smart enough to understand that the only reason why the rest of you can't watch it is because you can't imagine what it would be like to be a hungry hyena. Because if I was a hyena and I had babies at home, I don't care nothing. That antler is a happy meal. You know what I mean? That, that, that animal, it's just, it's just way, the way it goes. I guess it just depends on your, 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 your makeup or your personality or whatever. But the fallen world is a temporary unnatural state. And it's a reminder that things aren't the way they were meant to be. And so when we tell our children, when we're reading uh, Bible stories to them, we tell our children, you know, and they're asking us questions, and you say, well, in heaven the lion will lay down with the lamb. Don't tell your children that it's that way in eternity because that's the way that we want it to be or that's what we dream to be good or something. No, that's the way it was always intended to be, and the way it is now is wrong and was not intended to be that way. And the reason that God tells us that is because that's the right way. What about powers and principalities? We'll talk just a moment because we just finished a whole series on this. But basically, as I've said before, you're dealing with the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And again, it comes in that order in Scripture because I think that's the order that it comes in because I think that the devil... Uh, has light work because the world and the flesh take care of most of what he tries to accomplish. He doesn't even have to get involved. Until Christ, Christ returns, we live in a world in which the darkness of sin and evil corrupts all human systems. Every single human system is broken. Every system in which humans exist in is broken, which means every government is broken, Every church is broken. This church is broken. It will always be broken. So long as there's people in it, it will be broken. The only way to not be in a broken system is for there to be no people. If there's people, it's broken. Always. Every system. All the time. Why are we so shocked by this? Why do we uh, have a hard time understanding the reality of the world in which we live in? Listen, don't expect any human system to be without corruption or without brokenness our lives come under the influence of there our lives come under the influence of damage and a corrupt world system with its insatiable desires of the flesh and satan who desires to enslave the hearts and souls of men and women i know that's really cheerful but it is a reality and so, uh, what this makes me think of is uh, a lot of things, but in particular, I think about all the things that are, because I'm always asking myself, why are things the way that they are? I, I'm, I'm, I just marvel at 
the progression of things and the way things evolve into these bizarre manifestations of what they were intended to be. Let me give you a good example of what I'm talking about. If you've been around here for any length of time or listened to me for any length of time, you know that my great disgust with the American media. And so I can't even watch the news without getting frustrated. And, and what, frustra- what frustrates me about it is the degree to which our media uh, plays to the flesh. Now I'm going to give you an example. I'm going to give you a great uh, uh, just case study that you can do in five minutes at your house. You go home tonight, get on your computer, go on YouTube, and I want you to watch five or ten minutes of Walter Cronkite doing the evening news. Doesn't matter what clip it is, just watch five or ten minutes of Walter Cronkite giving the news. Then watch five or ten minutes of any news media today, and you will be astonished at the difference. It's just crazy to me. That you see, the, the, the media now cannot, the, their job is to, to give us information. What I want is information. I just want to know what's going on. But what they do is they present all the information in dramatic form because it, it, it feeds our flesh. And so, I mean, it's so crazy now that, that they dramatize the weather. Have you noticed that? It's, it's shocking. Like, they can't just come on and say, well, there was a tornado in the Midwest today. Just tell me that there was a tornado. I already know they're bad. Just tell me there was a to- tell me there was a flood. Tell me what. But instead, the music plays in the background, and you just listen to how they do it. A shocking wave passes across the Midwest. Why is it shocking? Hasn't that always happened there? Why do you think people build storm shelters and all that? Because they know that it's going to happen, right? So is it really shocking? Well, no, it's not shocking. But it's shocking the way they present it, isn't it? You do that. You just look at how, how the media used to tell us things and how they, it's, it is, it, it's what's shocking. It's so crazy. It's so crazy. Okay, so fellowship. Let's talk about this wonderful part of fellowship that happens in this dreaded growth, okay? As Christians, we often ask the question, where is God when we hurt? Because one of the things that pain does is it makes us feel alienated. It makes us feel alone. Part of pain is just this aloneness. One of the things that makes pain so painful is the feeling of being alone in it. The, the, the feeling of one, one thing that will definitely uh, multiply the impact of your pain is if in your mind or if in reality you, you feel as if no one understands or if no one's there. And so as followers of Christ, one of the things that happens in our pain 
is that we begin to wonder because we feel the same degree of separation. We begin to wonder, where is God when we hurt? There is a unique suffering, unique suffering that shapes the formation of believers as they enter into the call to love a lost world. You see, in the midst of all suffering that's common to all people because of the fallenness of sin in which the world that we all live in, but then there's unique suffering. There's suffering that's given only to followers of Christ and not given to anybody else. As God calls us to enter into this love of a lost world, it's going to bring suffering. If you endeavor to obey Christ in loving a lost world, that is impossible, brothers and sisters, without suffering. It's impossible. It's impossible. And experience the inevitable suffering that results from that love. That love brings, every single time, suffering. John chapter 15, Jesus addresses this point, and he says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. You see? That's not a, 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 a promise that we put on a plaque and we hang on our wall, but it's a promise that's a reality nonetheless. The call to love a lost world is going to inevitably bring about a degree of pain. The intimate knowledge of our own pain, the intimate knowledge of our own pain allows us to enter into the suffering of others and awakens us to the pain of God and the suffering of Christ. You see, here's where this issue of fellowship begins to come in. That as we, as we endeavor to walk and follow our Lord Jesus Christ and, and, and live as the disciples that we are in Him, it's going to bring about this pain. And so then you start thinking to yourself, now wait a minute, I'm not, uh, I mean, I'm not sure about this. But here's what happens. This acquaintance, this intimate knowledge of the pain that we feel and the, the, and the weight that we carry of the brokenness and lostness of the world around us. It brings us into a place where we not only understand the pain that others feel, but it awakens us to the pain that God must feel and that Christ felt. So Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death if by any means that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You know, there's no resurrection without death. You're not going to fellowship in the power of the resurrection without pain. Pain precedes resurrection. So the fellowship of suffering joins those who share little else in common. So that's the amazing thing about this pain that we, that we face in fellowship as believers. 
it binds us together in a very unique way. Because we, we galvanize to each other people who have fellowshiped with the, with the suffering of Christ, fellowship with one another, and, and are completely different in any, every other way in their life. They don't have any, anything in common whatsoever. Grew up in completely different environments. Had totally different family experiences. Have utterly unrelated vocations and interests and hobbies and everything else. But yet we're galvanized together. Not by the same pain. But by pain. By this burden of what God's called us to, to the lostness of people around you, to whatever God-honoring suffering that you suffer for the cause of Christ, it galvanizes people who don't have anything else in common together. That's what it means to share in the suffering of Christ. It makes me wonder, quite honestly, how is it that there are those around us who yet they claim the name of Christ, have no burden for the lost around them? And I don't mean a burden for the loss that you're responsible for or feel indebted to. I'm not talking about that. Everybody has a burden for their children. Everybody has a burden for their spouse. Everybody has a burden for their, for their family. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a burden for the stranger. A burden for someone who is completely unknown yet you're burdened because they don't know Christ. You see, that is the natural condition of the heart of a follower of Jesus. That that burden is in us because of the fellowship of the burden of all that Christ has accomplished for those purposes. That the one whom we're so indebted to for everything that we have gave everything for that cause, then how could that heart not, how could that heart just be indifferent to that reality? I don't know. I question a lot of things about that heart. You see, we identify more fully with Christ's struggle. And sacrifice because we know our own pain. Imagine, of course, this would be totally hypothetical, but just imagine for a moment that you had never experienced physical pain. That you knew nothing of physical pain. That somehow you had grown up in some bubble somewhere or some padded environment somewhere and so you knew nothing of physical pain 
And you then read the story, heard the story, watched the story of the crucifixion of Christ. It would have no impact upon you. The degree to which the suffering of Christ impacts you is the degree to which you have been impacted by suffering. Being nailed to a cross doesn't mean anything to somebody who's never suffered. You relate to the suffering of Christ through the suffering that you faced. So would it be fair to say that the greater degree to which you have suffered is the greater degree to which you can relate to the suffering of your Savior, which is the greater degree to which you will connect to the priorities of the Savior because you share in the suffering of the Savior. Because what matters to Him matters to you. And the degree to which it matters to you is the the degree to which you understand it matters to Him. So if you are very familiar with excruciating pain and suffering and you watch Jesus beaten beyond recognition and nailed to a cross, it crucifies you to watch that. Right? Yes. And so don't you see that there's this fellowship in our suffering that we ought to be, we ought to have a right understanding and we ought to realize that there is a degree of suffering in the Christian life that is innate to walking with Jesus. And what I'm telling you is to not shun that, but to embrace that. Embrace the fellowship. Think about the, what the Word of God says about the suffering of Christ. As horrific and unthinkable as it is, at the same time for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He was so committed to the redemption of people that he loved that he would stop at nothing. You see, my heart wants to fellowship with that. The burden that's within me comes from the suffering that I've faced. As we identify more with his suffering, where are we at? There. As we identify more fully with Christ's struggle and sacrifice because we know our own pain, the next one is, as we identify more with his suffering, our gratitude for his sacrifice is deepened. Isn't that beautiful? It's the identity of his suffering. It's it's how I identify with that. It creates this heart of gratitude within me. His death was necessary to achieve resurrection. No death, no resurrection. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, Paul says, and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now let's think about this for a moment. It's a very maligned and misused text. Christ's afflictions were not lacking in their atoning sufficiency. That is not what Paul's saying in Colossians chapter 1. They're lacking in that they are not experienced by all people. And so the rejoicing that Paul's talking about, the filling up of my flesh, what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ, is in the experience of the people that he's around. So think of it this way. 
Here's a good way to understand them. Jesus did some of his most glorious and powerful work. Where are we at? Uh, here's the next blank. Jesus did some of his most powerful work through suffering and self-denial. And now he calls us to do the same. It was through his suffering and his self-denial that enabled him and put him in position. That he, 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 he's demonstrating for us that in suffering and self-denial, he's now called us to do the same. Not to pursue a life of comfort. His death on the cross made it possible for us to draw near to God. And God now draws near to others. He draws others near to himself through revealing his power and his faithfulness in our faith in the midst of suffering. I would say to you that the most compelling thing to a lost world is the steadfast faithfulness of a suffering believer. So here's what we want to know when we hurt. When we hurt. When we do not see how any good could come out of this bad. We have hope within us that our suffering will be productive in God's economy. You see, what would be so much more beneficial in our pain than saying, God, why is this happening to me? God, how long is this going to go on? God, well, what good can come out of this? All questions that we have the propensity to ask, none of which are going to change anything with regards to what's happening. What would be a far more beneficial way to respond to suffering is to say, God, I'm hurting, and I know that you know that. And as I'm hurting, for however long I hurt, how might you use this to grow me and make me more like you? How can the suffering that I'm enduring be used for your glory? That would be a great question to ask. But instead, we get consumed with, well, why, how long, that our affliction will be used as part of God's eternal plan and saving work. So you see, there... What happens is, is that uh, funerals, for example. Funerals are these moments in time that no one wants to think about and no one wants to participate in and no one wants to, except for me. There's no more effective time to share the gospel than at a funeral. It is the most productive moment to lay the gospel before a lost world is in the midst of the reality that, ladies and gentlemen, you're not going to live forever. And that one day this box is going to hold you. And you should start thinking about things you don't want to think about. And let me tell you about Jesus. You see, because 
suffering, it, it creates an environment where the gospel blossoms. And so we want to seize those moments. It's the same thing in our own lives. So though its cause may be unclear, its purpose unknown, our suffering is not random or senseless because God's work in and through us gives it meaning. Gives it meaning. Yeah, I don't understand. I don't understand why one of the greatest Christian men I've ever known is taken away. I don't understand why the undisputed, without a doubt, greatest human father I have ever seen in my life, ever, was Lisa's brother. The best father and the best husband I have ever known, ever. No one's even close. And he's gone. Now, I don't understand why. There's no, there's no way that that's going to somehow become, I'm going to come to some reality that that's fair or meaningful. Or, no, listen. But I also know it's not random and it's not senseless. And I also know that God's work in and through me and those affected by his loss will be wrought for his glory. We'll, we'll use our lives and create meaning. So while it is costly, for the believer it will be rewarded. So when Jesus says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Oh. You know, Jesus isn't just talking about that one moment in Paul's life with the thorn in the flesh, right? You know that that's a principle. In other words, that it's a principle that as a follower of, of Christ, your weakness will always be rewarded with his strength. That's pretty good. There's always a reward. Though it's costly, it's rewarded. The biblical concept of being tested, tempted, tried, and proven is not like passing or failing a test, nor is it punishment. God doesn't operate in a punitive sense. Even in the Old Testament where we oftentimes accuse him of that and wrongly uh, supplant that into the Scripture, that's not what God's doing. Even when you're reading the Scripture and you think, well, that seemed a little bit harsh, you're wrong, and I'm wrong. That's not, the, that's not how God works. God, in his response, no matter how uh, far higher it is than our comprehension or understanding, is always working through the fire and the flood for our good, always. He's working in the midst of it. It doesn't mean that the fire's good or that the flood's good, but it means that he's working for our good in it. And so it's not passing or failing a test. You, you're not suffering because you failed a test. You're not suffering because God's punishing you for something. You may be suffering because you 
uh, there are things you need to learn. There may be suffering because God is doing some work in you that needs to be done. I don't know, but I don't need to know. What we need to know is the reality of how God works and why he does the things that he does and how he uses the things that befall those who love him in a fallen world. It's the testing that reveals the true nature of our substance, refining us through adversity by burning away all that obscures the purity of our faith. So the scripture says in 1 Peter chapter 1, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Yeah, amen. That's a, a theology of suffering that we can hang our hats on. So three final thoughts to bring us to a temporary conclusion. As a loving father, God ordains suffering to help us to release our hold on worldly hopes and put our hope in him. You see, apart from suffering, we just get consumed with ourselves. Our hopes become grounded in wrong things. But oftentimes, God will ordain those sufferings. And in doing so, He's releasing us from bondage. Our fiery trials consume our earthly dependencies. And leave us only the refined gold of genuine faith. And so finally, it's the supremacy of God's great faithfulness above all other securities that frees us to rejoice no matter what we may face in this world. The supremacy of God's great faithfulness. Again, not that we clamor for information that God's not given us, but just the reality of the situations and circumstances that we face gives us an opportunity to worship and praise God. And so in the providence of God, as I sat in my study preparing a study on suffering in the midst of all the suffering around me and that I'm facing personally. I could even immediately and intrinsically see and feel the tangible difference that God was making in my heart as I began to relate to of all people, to of all people, a Samaritan woman at a well.
to preach well on the Samaritan woman at the well. You have to identify with her pain. I don't know what it's like to be a woman, to live in Samaria, to be married five times, or to be living in sexual immorality or any other thing, but here's what I know. I know what it's like to hurt. And as I just studied every nuance of Jesus' interaction with her pain, my heart was just fellowshipping with his suffering and his relentless pursuit of those whom he encountered. And it was through my pain that he ministered to me. And so again, it will help us all to have a good understanding of suffering and how God works in our times of great pain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your spirit.